last week, and all I'm going to do here is fill in the blanks for you, and um, under uh, C, the Word of God is profitable for correction. Number four, there are several key components that may be involved in correction, and here they are, repentance, confession, forgiveness, forsaking sin, restitution, and restoration. And I don't want to take time uh, on them this morning, but uh, I know some of you will uh, be sick all week if you can't get the the blanks filled in. Uh, The Word of God is profitable for training in righteousness. And number one under that, here is where spiritual disciplines come into play. And then um, number three there is godliness requires self-discipline. And I understand that there is a, a... Every every generation or every other generation, somebody comes up with the idea that sanctification doesn't involve the person who's being sanctified, that we have no responsibility in that. Uh, that comes and it goes. It has, had, it is, it has uh, enjoyed a resurgence over the past eight or ten years and is, I think, uh, drifting away again. Praise the Lord. Um, but if you are going to grow in Christ, uh, yes, it is a work of the Spirit. But unlike salvation... It is a synergistic uh, work of the Spirit, meaning that you participate in it, and if you don't participate in it, then your growth will be minimal. Uh, Several uh, disciplines of the Word of God, obviously memorizing Scripture. I say obviously, but it's not obvious to everyone. You ought to be memorizing Scripture. Uh, The Word of God doesn't require you to memorize, but it does require you to meditate on the text cause you to meditate on the text of Scripture. And you know what? If you're meditating on a text of Scripture and really doing a good job with that, you're going to end up memorizing it by accident. Um, so memorizing Scripture, meditating on Scripture, mentioned that one, praying through Scripture. Uh, some of you guys are working through Don Whitney's book on praying the Bible. Um, that's, a, that's an excellent discipline. Uh, whether your uh, response to the Word of God is in writing or in prayer or both, uh, just engaging your mind in, in what that text is saying is important. So praying Scripture, worshiping through Scripture, uh, which I've had a wonderful opportunity to do here in, in Philippians chapter 2, and I'm really looking forward to next week, but worshiping in the Scriptures, ministering the Scriptures, that is, use it not only to re- reprove but to encourage one another in the Scriptures. Uh, one of the, the neat things about the age we live in is you can do that in all kinds of ways. Uh, you can text it, you can email it, you can tweet it, you can meme it, you can, uh, uh, what's the other one? Not meme, but, what? GIF, you can GIF it. Uh, I don't even know what some of these things mean, but uh, my kids do. Um, and then finally, and most importantly, obey the scriptures. Do this no matter how you feel. Obedience to the word of God is, uh, the pursuit of holiness is, is by default the pursuit of happiness. Uh, because it will lead you closer to God. Um, that doesn't mean it will always feel great. The Lord, uh, Lord sometimes uses affections, holy affections that are painful. Um, and so I don't want to say it's going to be happy slappy if you, if you resolve to obey, but I will tell you that it is the best way to live. It's just the best way to live. Um, you will be blessed in ways that... Um, that you cannot imagine. And then there's a lot more to say about that, but I trust that that, that will kind of get you going. Okay, so let's move on to the next one. The first tool of the seven tools was what? Bible. The second tool is? 
hymnal. And why a hymnal? What's the point of the hymnal? Singing, okay? Worship, right, worshiping together. Um, and so let's review the seven tools, the Bible, the hymnal, the apron, the eraser, the rod, the watch, and the cell phone. That one always sounds a little cheesy, but uh, um, last time we spent our hour familiarizing ourselves with the first tool, which is the Bible. Uh, not in terms of what it says, but rather in terms of what the Bible's role is in the Christian home. We're talking about seven tools for a godly believing home. And so, uh, you know, we spend all of our time around here, most of our time around here, uh, trying to understand the Bible, reading the Bible, studying the Bible, uh, applying the Bible. Uh, but the point of our focus last week was what is the role of the Bible in the home? And so this morning we want to discuss the second tool, and I'm proposing that the second indispensable tool for building a Christ-exalting home is the hymnal. Well, why a hymnal? Well, uh, because most importantly, the most important thing we do as believers, the most important thing we do as believers is worship. The most important thing we do as believers is worship. Last, uh, uh, John Piper said, uh, said this about the, the subject of worship in his little book um, called, um, it's his missions book, let the nations be glad. Here's, here's one of his opening uh, comments. In fact, it's on page 11. It says this. Piper writes, Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Does that shock you? Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exists because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne, missions will be no more. It is a temporary necessity, but worship abides forever. I hope that as you're opening the scriptures morning by morning, you're not just doing it to learn something new or, or even to uh, pursue obedience, although that should be really high on your list. Uh, main thing should be worship. Main thing should be worship. We talked about that in, with humility last week out of Philippians 2, right? Uh, where does this text lead you? Um, listen, if you allow the text of Scripture to lead you into worship, to humble you before God, to cause you to fall on your face, David Brainerd, my favorite extra-biblical hero, uh, would frequently write that he, uh, he loved to be on his face, in the dust before God. And you know what? If you humble yourself before God, if you worship God from the heart, humility is not going to be a problem. Obedience isn't going to be a problem. That's, that's going to be fruit. It's going to be born out of the root that is uh, deeply grounded in Jesus. Can we say the same thing about our homes that... Um, a happy marriage is not the ultimate goal of the home. Worship is. Or could we say a well-disciplined child or children or tribe in your home is not the ultimate goal of the home. Worship is. It's not having a nice home. The goal is worship. It's not just ministry, it's worship. 
It's not just cleaning or changing diapers, it's worship. And all of those things can, can drive you to worship, can be the focus of your worship. Worship is ultimate, not happiness or discipline, because God is ultimate and not man. And there is where you're going to find your joy, your motivation, your love for Christ that will drive you to live for Christ. This is what the elders of Calvary Bible Church were thinking when we came up with the purpose statement based on 1 Peter 2.9 for our church, which says, and you can quote this with me, we exist to proclaim the excellencies of Christ in all things to the glory of God in the joy of all peoples. Let's say it again. We exist to proclaim the excellencies of Christ in all things to the glory of God in the joy of all peoples. I mean, the focus that we wanted for our church is Christ, worship, Everything else will flow out of that. If anything else becomes the main focus, then it will become the wrong focus. Evangelism, I mean, we want to reach the world for God. We want to reach Fort Worth for God. But if that becomes the primary thing, it's the wrong thing. Um, we have, we've come to realize that the ultimate goal of the church is not Bible knowledge, not missions, not evangelism, or youth ministry, or anything else, the ultimate goal of the church is worship. And all of the other things that we can do come and go because none of our ministries is an end to itself. They're all means to the ultimate end, which is worship. So let's talk about worship. What is worship? What is worship? And I'm going I'm to press on here. We're not going to have a lot of discussion this morning because I don't want to get to the end and having not finished the notes again. But uh, Webster defines worship like this. Worship is reverence for God or a sacred object, uh, if you're pagan, I suppose. Uh, number two, worship is adoration or regard. Adoration, to adore something, to treasure something, or to regard it highly. Number three, worship is a title of honor for certain magistrates. Uh, where a person would come before a king and refer to him as your majesty or even your worship. Uh, we don't hear that uh, very often, except in maybe some movies once in a while. Uh, the New Testament, the verb, the verb form of worship is uh, prosce proscuneo, from which we, well, it, pros means toward and cuneo means to kiss. It's the act of paying homage to someone or to God. The Old English is where we get our word. Worship is actually a contraction, and uh, it was originally worth-ship. Worth, W-O-R-T-H, ship. Just like, um, you know, we're always fond of contracting phrases in words. For example, goodbye, right? That was, that was from an English phrase that, that was, God be with you. And then uh, that became too much to say as someone was walking out the door. And so goodbye is just a contraction of that. And worship is a contraction of worship because it's hard to get that TH in there. Um, at least that's the way I imagine that it happened etym etymologically. Um, but worship is kind of the, uh, the, the, the root of it. Uh, but let's talk about not just the New Testament, uh, Old English, but practical. 
To worship God is to obey the greatest commandment. And what is the greatest commandment? To love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and all of your strength. When I am worshiping God, I seek to please him above all else. I render obedience to his word. I sing his praise. I tell others of his glory. This is worship. And let me just pause here for a moment and ask, when you have an opportunity to talk, what do you talk about? When you have opportunity to extol something, is it your favorite team? Is it your job? Is it your grandbabies? Is it your house? Is it your car? Is it your money? Um, you know, it, it, all of these things are good. But do those things have your heart? So that the thing that you're always extolling, the thing that you're known most for, is that thing that you love. Um, that, I would suggest, is worship. And that's why Calvin repeatedly said, we can worship anything because our hearts are factories of idols. All men are worshipers. This is Roman numeral three. All men are worshipers. Man was created in the image of God, Genesis 1.26. This is where God says, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. God created man to be something like God. And we see that in, in, in Psalm chapter 8, where it says of man, uh, Psalm, uh, Psalm chapter 8, by the way, is one of the great anthropological texts in the Bible, how we should think about man. And it's interesting because in the King James it says, uh, you have made him a little lower than the angels. Some translations say heavenly beings. And a, an appropriate translation is, you have made him a little lower than God. Um, of all of his creatures, the one who is most like God is the human because God has endowed us with certain characteristics that belong to him. God created us to bear his image, and that means he created us to show the world what, what God is like. Uh, I like to say three things. It, it, he created us to show the world what God, what God is like, what Jesus is like, and what the gospel is like. Does your life and your conversation, the way you interact with people, and how you're interacting with your family, does it extol Jesus Christ. When I am worshiping God, I seek to please him uh, and love him. Uh, but secondly, uh, be there. Even though God created us to worship him, sin corrupted man's worship. And um, if we can take just a moment to read this text, Romans chapter 1, and I realize you know this text. If you don't know this text, you should get to know this text, it's really a, uh, not just remarkable, but foundational for understanding what God is doing in the world, how he relates to mankind, uh, sinful people, and, uh, and also what it means to be a man on this side of Genesis 3, uh, east of Eden, out of the garden. And so we find in 
starting in verse 18, listen to the anthropology. You understand what anthropology is, right? Anthropology is the study of man. And what we're concerned about is what, what does God say about man? And uh, I can tell you one thing God says about man. Uh, they need places to sit. So if you guys could get some more chairs, that would be great. <laughs> we need some in the back. Um, maybe he didn't say it exactly like that. but Okay, verse uh, 18 for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So there's something we learn about sinful men. We tend to suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen or clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. In other words, God manifests his glory to every human being. All you have to do is look up, look sideways, look, look at the sunset, look at the clouds, look at the moon, look at, you know, why are people tempted to worship the stars? Uh, because there's something majestic about it. Why did people worship the moon? Because there's something mysterious and majestic about it. Um, God is revealing something of his eternal power and divine nature they have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they, that is mankind, are without excuse. Excuse for what? Excuse for not believing God. The fool says in his heart there is no God. In order to say that, you have to suppress the truth. This is just the nature of man now that he is a sinner. And the things that have been made, therefore they are without excuse, verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God. You could just say, they did not worship him. They chose, outside the garden, they chose not to worship him. Or give thanks. Isn't that interesting? You know, you might pick something else here. What, what else would you say? They, they, uh, they did not honor him or sing his praises or obey him. But the inspired author says, don't give thanks. This is one of the marks of an unbeliever, which tells us the opposite as well, right? It, the implication here is if you're a child of God, you are one who frequently thanks God for everything that you have, even the carefully measured trials that you face. And you might say, well, which ones are the carefully measured ones? All of them, no matter how severe they may be. They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Darkness and light is often uh, contrasted in the Bible, light usually referring to truth, darkness uh, referring to willful ignorance, and certainly the case here. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and isn't, isn't that where we find our culture? The people who are really in charge in our culture and making the greatest impact and the most decisions are the ones who claim to be wise, but they are obviously fools. And exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them over. Now, I don't want to go into all of that, but God's judgment is already on those people. And on us, if we don't know Jesus. Uh, the point is, in all of this, that uh, the way Paul describes uh, the unbeliever 
is that he is a worshiper of the wrong thing. He worships all kinds of stuff. He worships himself. And that's kind of subtle, but it's, it's also pervasive how we worship ourselves. Um, and so uh, here is man. He is made in the image of God. And he is a worshiper, therefore. But sin has corrupted his worship. And so in verse 18, we saw that all sinners tend to suppress the glory of God. In verses 19 and 20, God made his glory unmistakable to them, so they are without excuse. Verse 21, all sinners know instinctively that God exists. Verse 21, all sinners naturally refuse to honor or thank God. Uh, except at Thanksgiving, where you might pray a prayer, or um, verse 22 and 23, all sinners deliberately, and here's the key, we all exchange the glory of God for idols. Uh, this, isn't, this isn't biblical counseling speak. This is Holy Spirit Apostle Paul speak. Um, we are all idolaters at heart. Apart from the Holy Spirit's work in our lives, we are all idolaters. We, we, tend, we are created to worship. We can't help but worship. Why do you watch the Olympics? I mean, what's the appeal? There aren't any animals who come. My dog does not come and sit with us to watch the Olympics. Uh, he sits with us to be warm. He sits to get a bone. He, he barks to be let out. He could care less. He couldn't care less. Uh, what's happening on the screen. While we're all cheering and ranting and raving because we're, we're wanting to, our, our, our team to do the impossible. And when they do it, it is unbelievable what human beings will do. The crazy, I mean, you come to church and here we are worshiping God Almighty and we're very restrained and, and to some degree we should be, right? Uh, and yet I can't help but see the disparity between how we respond to the glory of God and how people who will go to the stadiums uh, here in Arlington and, and wherever and stand up and cheer and chant and, and spend you know, a whole lot of money for tickets. I don't know how much tickets are, but they can't be cheap. And you go to the Olympics and you're spending thousands and thousands of dollars. Why? Because you want to see something amazing. It's worship. Worship. Um, it's a reflection of the reality that God created you to worship him. And to the extent that we see him as glorious, we do worship him. Uh, see, all sinners or idolaters, I want to press this point home. Some people worship the idol of power and influence. They have a lust for control over the people in their world. Some people worship the idol of pride and praise. They constantly seek satisfaction in the praises of men. They go out of their way to draw attention to themselves and to be adored. And some people worship stuff. They feel like the greatest happiness and satisfaction comes from buying and owning more, or at least something new. We might call it the, the Madame Blueberry Syndrome. <laughs> That's a... Blast to the past, isn't it? For others, it's uh, the, uh, the rush of adrenaline 
more than anything else, they love to take risks and try new things. They want to jump out of airplanes and climb mountains. And this kind of hits my family a little harder. And if they, if they can't feel their heart beating 200 beats a minute, they're bored. They think there's nothing to do. And, and there's their Bible. Or there's Thomas Watson sitting next to them. Um, many worship the idol of man's approval, their friendships, and everything, their friendships are everything to them. They would gladly sacrifice their Christian values so long as they can feel like they fit in and belong. And still others worship the idol of sensuality and pleasure. It might be the idol of food or perhaps the idol of sex or pornography. But let there be no mistake, when they engage in those activities, they're worshiping. And what you're saying is, these things are worthy of my all, my, my full attention, uh, to the exclusion of the God who is worthy of worship. Now, that's not, that's not to belittle uh, having righteous ambition, holy ambition. You should be ambitious. You should be ambitious about your job. You should be ambitious about your children. You should be am- ambitious, you know, about your marriage. I mean, you should, you should work hard. You should love it. You should think about it a lot. But you get the balance here. The focus needs to be primarily on Christ. And that's what God created us for. And because we're sinners, uh, that the wiring, the hard wiring that was originally ours in the garden has become somewhat scrambled so that we don't see God as the center of our universe so much anymore. We have to fight for that. We have to fight for that joy. We have to fight for, for that kind of worship every day because I don't know about you, but when I sit down, I have, I've noticed that if I don't get up while it's dark, I'm distracted by everything. <laughs> if it's light, I could be outside. If it's light, I could be on my way you know, to the office. If it's light, I could be... I could be studying. I could, if it's dark, I have less distractions. Um, because it's so easy to be distracted. You have to fight for it. So uh, D, salvation restores the sinner's capacity to worship. I'm laying the groundwork here, and we'll get to the practical as we go. God has recreated, for, recreated us for uh, worship. 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God who said, now listen to to the creation language here. The God who said, let light shine out of darkness. Or the way it's written in Genesis 1 is, let there be light. The God who said, let light shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God, where? In the face of Christ. So Paul is using creation language to describe your salvation. How did you become a worshiper of Jesus Christ? God said to your soul, speaking into the darkness of your soul, let there be light. And the result was faith. You trusted him. You found within your heart a love for him. The first thing your heart said is, I believe. In fact, that happens so quickly, it's easy to think, well, maybe it was my faith that came first and, and, and then he saved me. And, and theologically, that's not true. Um, practically, 
happens at the same time. Chronologically, you could say it happens at the same time. But it's as if God said, let there be light. And you immediately, having heard about Jesus so so many times all your life, you suddenly look at him and you say, he's amazing. He is beautiful. He is worthy of my work. Remember my dad, and I use my dad as an illustration, but it's such a, such a beautiful picture of out of darkness and into light. My dad would say, son, what was I thinking all of those years? What was I thinking? It's like waking up from a dream and finding myself in reality for the first time in my life. How did that happen? Well, he had heard the gospel 10,000 times, but one day, while he was sitting in church, or it was at that men's retreat, and God said to him, let light shine out of darkness. And he believed. And he was never the same. He was never perfect. (laughs) But he was never the same. And so it is with us. God recreates us for worship. And I say recreate because of the creation language that Paul's using here. Second, Christ resurrected us for worship. Colossians 3, 1 through 4. You're in Romans. Flip to the right a little bit. Can you manage all this stuff on your laps? Colossians 3, verses 1 through 4. And here's his argument. Colossians 3, 1 through 4. Therefore... If you have been raised up with Christ, there's resurrection. So the first one was creation, now it's resurrection. If you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on the things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. It's almost as if he's saying, uh, let, me, let me tell you one way to focus your mind on Christ. Um, remember this, that when Christ is revealed, you will be revealed with him in glory. And that should be both encouragement and that should also be warning that the day is coming, the final judgment, when we will be presented before God. But here's the thing. Your resurrection in Christ should drive you to worship. That's what he means. I mean, think of, think of Isaiah chapter 6, right? Recently we, we went through that text, and uh, I love that text because it, it reveals the glory of Adonai, the second person of the Trinity, uh, who in his incarnation is called Jesus, um, It reveals his glory. God has revealed his glory through words in Isaiah 6 that are more magnificent, at least in my mind, than in in other places where we see uh, a a little less in concentrated form. But there in Isaiah 6, it is so overwhelming, the glory of God. When Isaiah walks in the temple, he sees that vision, and there's the throne of God, and it's high and lifted up, and and there's seraphim all around it doing his bidding and proclaiming, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Um, 
I think there's somewhat of a reflection of that here. Therefore, if you've been raised up with Christ, watch this, keep seeking the things above where Christ is. Where is he? Seated at the right hand of God. Where is he? He's on his throne. He's on his throne. You know what? If you're thinking about Christ seated on the throne and all the implications of that, and and they are infinite, um, you will be, in the moment when you are focused on that, it will be virtually impossible for you to be focused on an idol. You want to know how to battle temptation? Whether you're a man or a woman, I mean, your, your temptations may be different from one another. In some cases, not so different. And yet sometimes you feel entrapped by those temptations. You know how do you battle those? Uh, here's the answer. Set your mind, because this is all about what you're thinking. Set your mind on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. And just start talking to yourself about the glory of Christ. What do you know about Christ? What have you learned about Christ? This king, this glorious king, remind yourself that he didn't stay on his throne, but he came to us, Philippians chapter 2. He came to us. He descended. He condescended. He entered into humiliation off of his throne and onto the cross and into the tomb for you. Tell you, you focus on that for a few minutes and whatever you're being tempted by will be gone. Your resurrection, your um, resurrection with Christ should drive you to worship. It's just we, we, I think the problem is we're just so distracted by everything. And there's so many fun things to do now. And, so, and they're so easy. It just go like this. Huh, there's a TV, look at that. You know, it's in my pocket. And uh, who, who thought, I mean, the other day, I, I, uh, I took a couple of members of the staff to Starbucks. We were going to have a meeting. And I got there, and, uh, and I realized I didn't have my wallet. And I said, well, I, I guess I could pay with my phone. And Katie started to laugh, and she says, that sounds so funny. You don't have your wallet. I mean, you could, your preference is to pay <laughs> with your wallet instead of your phone? Like, that's an option? It's an option. <laughs> I mean, you could do almost anything with this, it seems. And the primary thing that it does is distract us from Christ. Again, good tool, good tool. I'm not saying these things are bad. It's not the phone that's bad. It's it's the pastor who's bad. It's my heart that's bad. And um, and so number three there, uh, Christians are defined by worship. Um, True believers are marked by one ultimate characteristic, we worship Christ. In fact, our goal as believers is to proclaim the excellencies of Christ in all things to the glory of God and the joy of all peoples. Number four, Roman numeral four, two goals for the Christian home, therefore. A, Christian men and women lead their families to the glory of Christ. And you may ask, how? How do we do that? And that's a good question. Let's answer that. Number one, by modeling joyful worship. Talked about this a little bit last week, but you should model it. Uh, told you, you know, I have a place in my house where I have my quiet time, and, and part of it is, is just it's a comfortable place for me, and it's it quick, easy to get to the coffee, 
but also I, I kind of want to be there. If my kids wake up at the same time I'm up, I want them to see me in the Word. I, I think I told you last week about uh, when Chris's dad died and, and uh, everybody was asking, what's your favorite memory of dad? And, and her response was just, um, uh, I'll never forget him every morning uh, seeing him sitting in his, his chair with his cup of coffee and his Bible. Um, we should be modeling this. Now, I realize that, that not all of you can do that. Some of you have to leave early. Some of you have to, you know, who knows? This is not Bible. I'm just making some suggestions here. But you've got to find some way to model it. Model joyful worship. We simply must model what it looks and sounds like to be dazzled by the glory of God ourselves. Our highest calling is to treasure the glory of God above all things. Every day of our lives, we should be looking for the excellencies of Christ that God has put on display before us in three areas. Number one, in his word. You know, we ought to, we ought to be talking about what we're reading in his word with one another. Um, it's what believers do. But again, it's, it's easier not to. Secondly, in his world, if you have eyes to see, you'll see things in his world that proclaim the glory of God. And you'll see it everywhere. The turkeys who come up in my backyard declare the glory of God with the, with the craziest song. Whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> what are they doing? They're praising the glory of God. They don't know it. When a baby cries, she's She's glorifying God. Uh, there was a magnificent sunrise earlier in the week, and I hadn't seen one like it in quite a while. Red sky in morning, sailor take warning, right? But red sky in morning, give glory to God. It was magnificent. Last night we were walking, and there was Orion's belt. And I thought, man, the tail of the belt, or maybe it's part of the sword, I don't know, uh, it always points kind of south, and, uh, and, and it moves in the same orbit. We, we've been walking, my wife and I have been walking together for years, and I've been looking at Orion, and it's in a different part in the sky. It moves, it takes a little bit of a different path, depending on the season, and it goes down, and, and the Big Dipper comes up, and the North Star, Polaris. What is that? I mean, that's, that's not math, and that's not astronomy, that's worship. Worship it should lead you to worship. When you see a, a baby, when you see uh, uh, a possum, why did God create possums? <laughs> I don't know. For his glory. And, and I don't understand it, but um, all of these things were his glory. And then in our circumstances, and this is the one you have the most opportunity for, you're either going to make it or break it in your circumstances. How do you respond to negative circumstances? Do you give glory to God? Do you tell your, your kids or your family members, your wife, your husband, it's going to be okay? It's going to be okay. We, we serve a, a God who's bigger than this problem. And no good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. God's not withholding anything from us. He's carefully measured this trial for us because he loves us. Um, we should be modeling joyful worship when we read his word, when we see things in his world, and when we encounter things in our circumstances. Secondly, that's modeling. Secondly, by instruction. We talked about this a lot last week. Instruction about the glory of God. 
Um, and we talked about Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. Hear, O Israel. This is, this is talking about everyday talk, how we talk to one another about uh, the glory of God. Everyday talk. Hear, O Israel. The Lord, the Lord is God. The Lord uh, is one. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Now listen, these words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. And guess what? If they're on your heart, they're going to be on your lips too. Uh, these things should be on your heart. And you shall teach them diligently to your sons and talk of them when you sit in your houses and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and... They shall be as the frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Um, there ought to be scripture in your home. There ought to be scripture on your mouth. Um, the, the Jews took this very, uh, very literally and made these little boxes called phylacteries where they would put a little portion of a, a written text like a fortune cookie strip of paper and put it in a little box and, and tie it to their forehead and tie it to their hands. Uh, when, they, when they'd walk through a door, if you, if you ever watch uh, Fiddler on the Roof, every time they walk through the door, they touch their lips and touch the part of the door where the scripture is hidden inside the door frame. I don't know if that's code. <laughs> um, but they took it very, very seriously. You should be acknowledging the word of God all the time, all the time, all the time. And of course, for them, it just became tradition and they forgot why they do it. But we forget why we give thanks before a meal. Do you remember why we give thanks for a meal? you remember, remember why? Because we're thankful. We're supposed to be thankful for the meal. Now, I, I, back before my dad was saved, uh, I, used, I used to say his prayer with them, and the, the last few words of it I never understood as a child. It was just gibberish. But he said it all the time, every meal, every meal, every meal. And it used to drive me crazy. I thought, well, he doesn't mean that. He doesn't mean that. He doesn't mean that. I remember this. When, I mean, I was real little. He, he can't possibly mean that. I mean, it is, I have no idea even what he's saying, and I'm sitting next to him. But it's what you say. It's what you say. I mean, we're, that's a part of our tradition as evangelicals is we pray before the meal. We say, let's pray. And then we say something to God about the food. Um, it should be instruction in everyday talk. It should be instruction in family worship. Remember when I was associate pastor here, early on, 1994, 1995, somewhere in there, and we had a group of guys who were meeting, and uh, we, were, um, we were having breakfast, and, uh, and then we would talk about life. We would talk about uh, Arthur Pink's book, The Attributes of God, and then we would pray. And uh, when we got to the prayer time, we would take requests of one another, and one of the guys said, you know, pray for me. I'm just struggling with family worship, and I haven't been as consistent as I should. And okay, so I'm, the, I'm one of the pastors, and he's one of the sheep. And I said, uh, I, said I have a question. Um, what's family worship? <laughs> I'd never heard of that before. I, said, I mean, I'm a product of Calvary Bible Church. Um, family worship, we ought to be, we ought to be meeting with our, our family, whoever that family is. If it's just you and your wife, you should meet together. And one of the things I started doing recently was just getting up in the morning before I go to work. Uh, Chris and I, we listen to a psalm, because that's one of the good things you can do on your iPhone. We listen to a psalm. We kind of highlight things. You can just poke it with your finger and highlight it, uh, certain texts, and then we kind of walk back through it. 
and uh, pick a verse or two and talk about it a little bit. And then we just, we just pray. It takes, I don't know, it's less than 10 minutes. Um, but every day, every day. Uh, not every single day, but it's what I try to do before I go to work. Um, but that's, uh, that's a, a part of family worship. Last night, it, it, and, for, and for a teenager, it gets, it gets a little dicey. It gets harder um, with teenagers because they all have schedules. And if you have a lot of teenagers in your house, and right now we have three, um, and then it gets even more complicated. So uh, we've taken to reading books, and the book we're reading right now is called This Changes Everything. And it's really, really good. It's written by a 19-year-old girl. And she's talking about how the gospel changes how you look at everything in your life, how you should look at everything in your life. And uh, it's really, really good. Um, I commend it to you. And I'll have another resource here as well. Uh, and then corporate worship, Ephesians 5, 18 through 20. Do not get drunk with wine. Flip the page. For that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your hearts to the Lord, always giving thanks. There it is again, right? Always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. Do you realize that singing is a command? It's not optional if you're a Christian. Do you realize that uh, Mormons... I mean, uh, 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 Muslims don't sing. They don't sing praises to God. They have one guy who stands in the tower and, and he offers the prayer and it sounds like singing. Um, but they don't do corporate singing. Um, if you go to a Catholic church, there's no corporate singing, right? Those of you who came out of Catholicism, it's no corporate singing. There might be a choir that sings. But you don't sing as the body of Christ. Um, but we should and, and Paul is, uh, you might say, well, I can't carry a tune. Listen, the Spirit intercedes <laughs> with groanings that are too deep to be uttered. Uh, you can sing, that's right, and, and some of you are saying amen, right? Um, it's okay, you don't have to have a, I mean, you don't have to be trained, you don't have to have a great voice, you just sing, just sing. And more importantly, when the church sings, when the body sings, you know what it's like? It's like all of us, we're all praying the same words to God. Um, Christian men and women, this is A, the next thing here. Christian men and women protect their families from idols. Listen to this, Jeremiah Burroughs, out of his book, Gospel Worship, Jeremiah Burroughs was a Puritan pastor. Did I, did I reproduce this in your notes? Okay, yeah. If I reproduced it in your notes, it's because I thought it was fantastic. Otherwise, I'd just read it. Uh, Jeremiah Burroughs, listen. Can you say in the midst of your abundance, Lord, you give me all conveniences in this world and all outward things that I lack. But Lord, this is that which is the joy of my soul. This is that which makes my life comfortable, even communion with yourself in the duties of your worship that I have free access unto the throne of your grace to worship you, the Lord, and, uh, and there meet with you when I am in the performance of holy duties. Oh, Lord. Um, <laughs> I lost a line here. Oh, Lord, you that know all things, know that this is one thing that makes my life comfortable. It is not that I have a table furnished with a variety of dishes, 
and that I can have liberty of time to go into company and spend, to spend according as I please. But Lord, those outcomes of your spirit that I find in the duties of your worship, those are the things that make my life blessed unto me. Uh, it's the thing that really um, feeds your soul. Is it the word of God, prayer, singing God's praises? Um, what would your spouse, your children, your parents, or friends say is the primary object of your worship? Uh, there have been days when, to my shame, I think um, my kids would say, Daddy worships church, and that's wrong. Uh, it's my job, right? Think about it all the time. And, and dads, that can, be, that can be your default. And we need to guard our hearts. And number three, God wants us to teach and treasure the excellencies of Christ in our homes. God wants us to teach and treasure the excellencies of Christ in our homes. Now, on the back there, I've put some uh, practical help. And it was interesting because uh, when I first wrote this series of, uh, of lessons, it was 10 years ago, it was 2008 when I did this, and I really haven't looked at the notes in 10 years. And I looked at the notes, and the very first practical help is this thing, Introduction to Family Worship by Kirk Cup and Oscar Berg. And I went, what in the world was that? Um, so I went out to Katie and I said, uh, listen, I guess 10 years ago we wrote this thing by uh, Kirk Cup and Osterberg, Introduction to Family Worship. And she said, hang on, let me check. Shh, here it is. Uh, she popped it up out of our, uh, our server in the office. And here it is. And uh, they are on, are they on the back table or did they get passed out? Uh, okay, so if you're interested in this, um, it's just, it's, it's instruction and it's practicality. And for those of you who have little kids, this is a gem because uh, we have a long-term family worship plan in the back and we give you a song to sing, a catechism question or two, one and two, a memory verse and a scripture reading for each, each day or each time you meet. The first song is a mighty fortress. Your kids should learn that from when they're really, really young. And you should teach them. Um, and, and talk about what each verse means. And then the catechism questions. What is that? This is great. This is uh, a catechism for boys and girls. I think it came through Spurgeon, uh, Baptist catechism. And let me just read off some of the questions, okay? When you think catechism, you think long question, long answer. Uh, how about this? Who made you? And the children say... God made me. What else did God make? God made all things. Why did God make you in all things? For his own glory. Shana used to say, for his own gloria. <laughs> I shouldn't have said her name. Now, don't, don't go embarrass her. <laughs> um, how can we glorify God? By loving him and doing what he commands. Why ought you to glorify God? Because he made me and takes care of me. Are there more gods than one? No, there is only one God. In how many persons does this one God exist? Now we're getting to the deep end. In three persons. Who are they? 
God the Father, no, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Who is God? God is a spirit and has not a body like a man. Where is God? God is everywhere. Can you see God? No. This one's important. Um, I cannot see God, but he always sees me. (laughs) Uh, Can God do all things? I love this answer too. Yes, God can do all his holy will. From the earliest days, they can learn theology. Um, So all of that is in here, as well as a list of of some other resources. Uh, There's instruction on how to do uh, family worship for different uh, groups. I guess we didn't put one in here for teenagers, but maybe we ought to uh, uh, add that. Um, And then there's songs for family worship, or at least that's what it used to be called. Who's got one? Can you hold it up? Somebody, there's one. I see that hand. Uh, Somebody else got one? Can you hold it up so everybody can see it? No, we have literature. There's one. Okay, uh, so it used to be called Songs for Family Worship. It's, it's the songbook that we use. We've been using it for years and years uh, in our home for family worship. We used it last night. Um, they use it for student ministries. We use it for just anything we, where we need to grab. Uh, so the elders use it on our retreats. Um, and it's, it's just the lyrics. We assume you know the tunes. And uh, it's just fun to sit and have, have somebody, you know, or have the family choose what songs we're going to sing that night. And uh, we use it in small groups. Uh, and then How Majestic Is Your Name, I'm not sure if this is still in print or not, uh, but it, it explains the theology behind and the stories be, behind some of uh, the great hymns that we sing. Don Whitney's uh, got a book called Family Worship. There's also a quick reference guide for counseling. Uh, that's good because if you just want to focus, uh, if you want to find a text for a particular circumstance, it's great to just crack that open. Uh, interestingly, that was uh, written by... Uh, John G. Cruz, who is Jason's grandfather, and uh, one of the first things I found out about Jason is his grandfather uh, wrote this, and, and he edited it in Mexico while he was an unbeliever. Um, and then Growing Up Christian is a really good, uh, a good source if your kids are a little older. Uh, it talks about uh, the dangers and delights of growing up uh, in church, and there are dangers. Um, uh, to your soul. You, you could start trusting in your uh, experience uh, as, a, as, uh, as one who's grown up in the church. And then one that I added uh, to this um, is uh, Pilgrim's Progress. And we always used to use the new amplified Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, they have another one that's more recent that is, uh, is more like the original. It's just in plain language. Um, but I really enjoyed the amplified version. And in any case, uh, my kids, if you ask them uh, for things we did in family worship over the years that you remember, my kids will say Pilgrim's Progress. Um, and so that's a, that's a great text to use, uh, not to replace the Bible by, by any means, but, uh, but to convey uh, solid spiritual truth, um, biblical theology to uh, our kids and our families. Well, we're over time. Let's pray. And uh, I'll tell you what, let me turn it over to Matt and have Matt pray.